Welcome to Pin Drop World's News, the show where, each week, we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm AJ Camacho, here to guide us through today's show as we explore the news around Mozambique, specifically the country's lagging development, rampant corruption, and the insurgency in Cabo Delgado. We'll be hearing from former U.S. Ambassador to Mozambique, Dennis Jett. And as always, we'll conclude with a panel of the Pindrop producers to discuss the news and what our guest had to say. Now, before we begin, I want to say, I know that at the end of our last episode on Russians in Georgia, we said we'd be covering Israel and Palestine next. Well, as you might imagine, we feel a particular pressure with that topic to get everything right, to make the episode as close to perfect as possible. And as a result, it's taking a bit longer than it normally would. This was an episode that we were preparing for a later week, but it happened to be ready sooner. So without further ado, here you go. Before we get into the news, it's country profile time. We don't expect you to know everything about Mozambique. We certainly didn't before this week. So here are some fast facts. Its capital is Maputo. Its official language is Portuguese. The currency is the Mozambican Metical. Its gross domestic product is estimated at 16 billion US dollars. It has a population of 32 million. And its dialing code is plus 258. Oh, and fun fact Mozambique is the only country to feature a modern firearm on its flag. While Guatemala, Haiti, and Bolivia feature antiquated muskets or cannons on their flags, Mozambique's bears an AK-47 rifle with a bayonet on its end. The weapon officially represents defense and vigilance, with the AK-47 having been the primary weapon used by guerrillas fighting for Mozambique's independence from Portugal in the 1970s. Now, let's begin our exploration of Mozambique by rewinding the clock and looking at a rundown of the country's history and politics. The region that is now Mozambique has a rich history dating back to ancient times. The indigenous Bantu-speaking people inhabited the area for centuries, establishing diverse cultures and societies. The European colonial era cast its shadow over Mozambique as Portuguese explorers arrived in the late 15th century. The country, due to its strategic coastal location, became a major hub for trade and commerce. In 1505, the Portuguese built their first settlement, the Fortress of Sofala, in the country's south. That same year, the Portuguese crown established the colony of Portuguese East Africa, which merged many different indigenous ethnic groups plus the ruling Portuguese settlers under one administration and basically defined the borders of modern Mozambique. Unsurprisingly, and as was almost always the case, this colonial period also witnessed the brutal exploitation of resources and the forced labor of the local population. The struggle for Mozambique's independence gained momentum in the mid-20th century. Mozambican nationalist movements, most notably the Mozambique Liberation Front, known by its Portuguese acronym Frelimo, spearheaded efforts to free the country from Portuguese colonial rule. After a protracted war of liberation, Mozambique finally gained its independence in 1975. The Portuguese agreed to allow the Marxist-Leninist Frelimo, the primary guerrilla group that had been fighting for independence, to establish the newly independent state. 
Frelimo has remained the dominant political party in Mozambique politics ever since, winning every presidential election. The transition from Portuguese rule to independence was short, lasting only a matter of months. While Portugal had upped efforts to develop the colony in the final years before independence, by the end of the 1960s, barely more than a quarter of Mozambicans had received any formal education at all. The post-independence era ushered in new challenges as the country navigated its path towards nation-building and development. Frelimo military commander Samora Machel took control of the government as Mozambique's first president. Machel's socialist policies aimed to redress inequalities, but the country also faced economic difficulties and the impact of a civil war. Yes, only two years after independence, Mozambique broke out into a bitter civil war between Frelimo and the Mozambican National Resistance, also known as RENAMO, a conflict that spanned nearly two decades. The Frelimo government was aided by Zimbabwe, Tanzania, and Malawi, while Rhodesia and South Africa backed the anti-communist RENAMO. The war ravaged the nation and left a lasting impact on its society and infrastructure. In all, over one million people were killed, either from violence or from famine brought on by the war. In the early 1990s, with the end of the Cold War, Mozambique turned a corner. Frelimo adopted a multi-party political system as part of a new constitution, marking a significant shift toward democracy. The Civil War also came to a close in 1994, after a two-year UN peacekeeping operation. Mozambique, it seemed, was beginning its journey towards stability and reconciliation. The 21st century saw Mozambique grappling with various challenges and opportunities. The country discovered significant natural resources, particularly gas reserves, which promised economic potential, but also raised questions about resource management and equitable distribution of benefits. For some years, Mozambique's political stability improved, and though Frilimo continued to win every election and enlist government resources in their campaigns, it seemed like opposition parties had the potential to win free elections. However, more recent elections have seen the government ramp up the oppression of dissidents and opposition while outright rigging elections. A 2019 European Union mission to observe the presidential elections found concrete evidence of, quote, ballot box stuffing, organized multiple voting, intentional invalidation of votes for the opposition, altering of polling station results with the fraudulent addition of extra votes, unlikely turnout figures, and major results deviations between polling stations in the same polling center, end quote. Indeed, while Mozambique's politics are marked by a nominally multi-party system, experts agree that in practice it is an authoritarian state and no opposition party could enter government under the current regime. In addition to endemic corruption, the country is challenged by an Islamist insurgency in the northern province of Cabo Delgado and a dearth of development. In fact, let's start our discussion of the big issues right there with development. 47% of Mozambicans live in poverty, 53% cannot read and write, and more than 1 in 10 adults have HIV AIDS. In all, Mozambique scores 0.45 on the Human Development Index, making it the 7th least developed country in the world. While this has improved somewhat in recent years, change is coming at a snail's pace. 
There is reason to be hopeful. As the World Bank notes, quote, the country is endowed with ample resources of arable land, water and energy, as well as mineral resources and newly discovered natural offshore gas, three deep seaports, and a relatively large potential pool of labor, end quote. Indeed, the Mozambican economy grew by about 4% in 2022, making it one of the fastest growing economies in Southern Africa. But ultimately, substantial development progress is being hindered by a corrupt and unstable political context. Speaking of which, let's talk about our second big issue, corruption, possibly the greatest of the issues facing Mozambique. Corruption is such a challenge because it self-perpetuates. Corruption stalls development as resources are diverted toward personal wealth and away from the benefit of communities. And as these communities remain poor, they are too preoccupied with providing for their daily necessities to hold corrupt officials accountable. Moreover, Mozambique's corruption appears to be getting worse. According to the Corruption Perceptions Index, the country has become more corrupt in relative and absolute terms over the past decade, currently sitting in the bottom quarter of the most corrupt countries in the world. And Mozambique's corruption is wide-ranging, from the lowest police officer to presidential cabinet ministers. Indeed, between 2013 and 2014, state-owned companies took out $2 billion in loans from international banks to finance a tuna fishing fleet and armed surveillance ships. But government officials hid the debt from the public, parliament, and other international lenders. In the process, around half a million dollars went missing, the fate of which has yet to be traced. When the so-called hidden debt surfaced in 2016, the International Monetary Fund canceled its loans to the country. Confidence plummeted and the economy crashed, with GDP falling 25% in the space of a year. Just last December, a court handed down verdicts in the trial of the 19 high-profile defendants accused of money laundering, bribery, blackmail, extortion, and other crimes in connection with the hidden debt case. In all, 11 people were found guilty and each was sentenced to more than 10 years in prison. Among the convicted was Armando Ndambi Gebuza, the son of then-president Armando Gebuza. Mozambique's finance minister at the time, Manuel Chong, was arrested in South Africa in 2018 at the request of the United States. The Justice Department was investigating Chong for defrauding U.S. investors as part of the hidden debt scheme. In July, Chong was extradited to the United States, where he is now facing charges of conspiracy to commit wire fraud, securities fraud, and money laundering, which victimized American investors. Former President Gabuza himself has denied knowledge of the loans and has not been indicted. While civil societies are hoping the convictions send the clear message that corruption doesn't pay off, it is yet to be seen if the high-profile case will provoke long-term change. Finally, we will conclude with our last big issue, the Islamist insurgency in Mozambique. On October 5th, 2017, a pre-dawn raid targeted three police stations in the town of Mosimboa de Praia, in the northern province of Cabo Delgado. The 30 attacks killed 17, including two police officers and a community leader. 14 of the perpetrators were captured. During their brief occupation of Mosimboa de Praia, the perpetrators stole firearms and ammunition and told residents that they reject state health and education and refused to pay taxes. The group was a newly formed Islamist militant group called Al-Shabaab. It was the beginning of the insurgency in Cabo Delgado. 
Over the following years, the Islamic State of Iraq in Syria, or ISIS, came to support the insurgency, while Rwanda and other Southern African countries sent troops to help the Mozambique military contain the situation. Notably, the province is home to a large reserve of natural gas, estimated to be worth more than $55 billion. According to a report made in 2016 by the French energy company Total, their project alone would involve relocating 550 families, with 952 families losing access to their cultivated land to make way for the project facilities. In addition to Total, ExxonMobil had two projects planned for the region when the insurgency broke out. Locals and activists allege that the petroleum businesses may even be supporting the insurgents, but these rumors were never substantiated. As the Mozambique government sought ways to quell the insurgency, they looked to various sources for help. In September 2019, Mozambique contracted the Wagner Group, which was already providing bodyguards to the president, to provide 200 mercenaries to combat the insurgency in Cabo Delgado. Why Wagner specifically, as opposed to American private military contractors or other mercenaries? Well, President Felipe Nyusi indicated it was partially in gratitude to the former Soviet Union for supporting Mozambican independence in 1975. It is also possible that it was a token of gratitude for Moscow's decision to forgive 90% of the Mozambican debt it held. Either way, Wagner entered Cabo Delgado in September 2019. Wagner troops were supposedly especially poor at communicating, adapting to the environment, and cooperating with the Mozambican military. It was even alleged that none of the mercenaries spoke Portuguese or Swahili, the dominant languages in the province. Wagner sustained regular casualties from ambushes during their time in Cabo Delgado. Across two attacks in October, seven Wagner mercenaries were killed. In November 2019, only two months after entering the province, the Wagner group withdrew from Cabo Delgado in what was labeled by outside observers as a spectacular failure. However, a turning point in the conflict may have come. In 2021, around 1,000 Rwandan troops entered Cabo Delgado for anti-terror operations. Rwanda coordinated with the Mozambique military to launch counterattacks, regaining strategic coastlines, towns, and other territories. The success of Rwanda's involvement is hard to overstate. Between the start of the insurgency in October 2017 and 2020, over 1,000 people died on average each year. In 2022, the year after Rwandan troops entered Cabo Delgado, there were only 73 reported fatalities. Indeed, residents of the province have reported feeling much safer and having fewer disruptions to their daily lives over the past couple of years. Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, has been quick to praise the operation, saying he understood the insurgency was mostly contained. Let me say maybe 80% of the problem has been addressed. The 20 might be small or big, depending on the added number of circumstances, but that needs to be cleared as well. To date, the Islamist insurgency in Mozambique has killed over 6,500 people, and nearly 1 million have been displaced from their homes. For more insights and analysis surrounding these issues and more, we turn now to our first guest interview with the former U.S. Ambassador to Mozambique, Dennis Jett.
Hello, folks. I am Francisco Camacho with Pindrop World News, and I'm speaking now with Ambassador Dennis Jett. Mr. Jett was the U.S. Ambassador to Peru and as well to our country subject today, Mozambique. Ambassador Jett, thank you so much for joining Pindrop today. Thank you for uh, inviting me, Francisco. To talk about a couple of particular points, if I may, I want to turn first to uh, corruption, um, which you seem to describe as one of, if not the greatest problem facing Mozambique in a systematic way. Uh, I want to talk about the consequences that you might foresee from the hidden debts uh, case in the trials. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, we've told our listeners that we there were 19 high-profile figures who have gone through judicial trials for this corruption case. Do you think that the fact that these uh, trials did take place, that there are these punishments being seen out, is that going to have any effect on corruption in the long term, or is it just a one-off case? Well, it would be nice to think that it would uh, limit it, um, but I doubt it will have much impact. I think it was very encouraging, encouraging that these people were uh, brought to trial. I, every time uh, our former president gets indicted, I get encouraged too. Um, but we haven't gotten to trial yet. Um, so, uh, and but I think part of the problem is you've got international banks who are willing to lend, uh, make these loans, which they know are, are bad loans because they get huge commissions and kickbacks on them, which is why there was international uh, prosecution uh, and some of the bankers were, I haven't followed all the cases, but some of them were, were tried uh, or charged. And so um, it really, the, but it's pretty systemic, the corruption. And of course, it could be just a, 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 a cop stopping your car and saying you were speeding. And then, you know, basically, if you pay this speeding ticket on the spot, uh, meaning you hand a $5 bill to the cop, uh, then uh, you, you get to proceed. Uh, I was listening to the radio, I think yesterday, where they were talking about now that the Taliban has taken over in Afghanistan, I mean, they've done all kinds of horrible things with regard to women's rights, but there aren't cops everywhere taking bribes. You can drive anywhere, and according to the one person who was talking about the situation there, uh, you could drive anywhere in, in Afghanistan and you wouldn't be harassed by the police every, you know, so many miles. So uh, it, it's kind of endemic in, in countries, uh, some countries, and it really takes leadership at the top. You know, the, the old saying that the fish rots from the head. Well, I, I think uh, that's true. Uh, and there's limits to what you can do, but you, you, if it, if it's not seen that the, the top levels, uh, are, are not corrupt and working against it, then it's basically give, giving the signal that everybody can engage it in it. And so, um, it's a long way of saying, I'd, I'd like to think it'd provide some limitation, but it's not going to change the, the the basic problem, which is that you've got too many people with too too much little power and too little checks on the, on the abuse of that power, and 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 
poor salaries. You know, if I were making $200 a month and could stop traffic uh, on the street outside my house, I would probably uh, start doing that too. Right. Yeah, corruption manifests in many different ways. And uh, it seems like Mozambique is a country where it manifests in most of those ways. So uh, it, like you said, an endemic problem in a lot of ways. But to turn to uh, another issue, the insurgency in Cabo Delgado, I, I really want to talk about this because this had been in and out of the news, uh, even in the US for many, for many years now. But I, you know, the coverage has been less and less uh, since the Rwandan uh, troops came in, about a thousand of them. Uh, do you think that they are succeeding in, in quelling this uh, insurgency? Have the Rwandan troops in particular had a, a big impact in this regard? And what is the status of the insurgency at the moment? Well, it's kind of hard to say because I, I was just reading an article that said the insurgents attacked a military base and killed 10 soldiers and had, had taken over this base. Um, and in the same article, they were saying that the president of Mozambique had claimed that they had pushed the insurgents back out of all the, all the places they were. Um, it, I think the fundamental problem there is that we're talking about um, the, the northernmost province uh, of Mozambique. The capital of Mozambique is in the southern tip of the country. So there's probably a thousand miles or more between those two um, places. And the people, not only in the extreme north, but pretty much anywhere outside the capital. Again, it's kind of like the United States where people think what happens in Washington is a different world and nobody in Washington cares about the rest of the country. Um, there, it's, it's manifest in the fact that you have high unemployment uh, and you have a subsistence agriculture is the only way to get by often. But you have a government that shows no apparent interest in doing anything for, the, for its own people. And so when some Islamic extremist or whatever you want to call him, you know, insurgent and terror, terrorist, violent extremist, etc., lots of different names depending on how you define it and how, what you're trying to convey with that name. Uh, when they come through and say, hey, unemployed young man, um, your government doesn't care about you. Your government has given you no hope for the future. Why don't you join the insurgency and, and we'll take over and make things better and, and run the, the world the way we see, according to our interpretation of Sharia law or whatever it is. Um, and so that's attractive. Uh, the UNDP did a, a, a study, United Nations Development Program, where they went out and interviewed like 450 young men um, who had belonged to violent extremist groups. And, and they asked him, basically, why did you join? And they, and they said just that. No hope, no job, no future, no government that cares. Why not? And so... Um, how long that's that's not going to change. The government isn't going to suddenly develop an interest in serving its own people. The government is basically interested in serving the people in the government. And so uh, and they don't have the pressure. Other than the occasional criminal case uh, to, to 
to do better. Um, they'll try and rig the elections again, and uh, they'll do their best to prevent opposition parties from having any success, success even at the local level. Um, so it's uh, it's hard to how strong uh, are these forces? Where do they get get their weapons and and their revenue from if you're you know it, it's a business you have to have income to uh you know keep your your people on the payroll and, uh, but it's a kind of shoe, shoestring operation i don't know that they're getting any uh, any support again one of the reasons it was important for mozambique and the success there was none of the neighboring countries were providing support to to the rebels as they were when it was Rhodesia and apartheid South Africa. Uh, but I don't know of any outside support, but, um, and now you have Rwandan troops. I guess the Rwandan troops uh, are sufficiently well-trained, well-paid and well-led and have enough combat experience that they can afford to, to go into a country like Mozambique. And, and I'm sure, they're probably uh, an African version of Wagner. They'll probably go in and say, "Hey, we'll help you with your problem, but you know, this is what you're going to have to pay us." Uh, I, I don't know. If, of course, Wagner has no uh, limitations on the human rights abuses or other kinds of crimes it will commit. I would hope that Rwandan troops are a little better disciplined in that regard. But, you know, if, if you were a, a Mozambican soldier and rarely got paid and saw your officers, you know, basically interested in enriching themselves, you know, you wouldn't be willing to or particularly interested in running out and dying for your country. And so um, I can see why the Mozambican army is basically incapable of dealing with this. Uh, and you have certain, um, if not popular support, uh, you have a local population that would just like to not be killed by either side, and so they're not going to not going to support the government in their efforts to um, get rid of the terrorists. So it, it it can it's a situation that can go on for some time. The only problem, of course, is you have multi billion dollar energy projects that, that oil companies around the world and energy companies would like to exploit. And so they will be pumping money in. And one of the reasons in Angola that the government was able to c continue collecting that $3 billion in oil revenue is the oil was offshore. Uh, I'm sure that they will create an enclave uh, um, the energy companies and probably protected with mercenaries, and that may allow, you know, it'll add to the cost of the resources taken out. But uh, as I said, multi-billion-dollar project uh, projects uh, that, that's pretty strong incentive to um, to con continue the um, th those kinds of developments, and of course the government get its hands on some of that money. And one thing that won't happen is it won't go toward developing the local area in the same way in Nigeria that 
was it Biafra, where they pumped out the oil and and uh, left the pollution and nothing else. Um, so you won't have any popular support um, unless the government's you know smart enough, which I doubt it is, to provide some resources locally to demonstrate to the people that it's not just about coming in, taking the resources, and and leaving them even more impoverished than before. I, I want to touch on something you briefly mentioned, which is the involvement of Wagner in the, the Cabo Delgado insurgency. Um, I think we have time for like two more quick questions, but um, okay. regarding Wagner, uh, you know, they had been sort of like the Praetorian guard more or less uh, in Mozambique for the, for the president prior in 2019, they were briefly involved in the Cabo Delgado insurgency. Um, in what I think many regard as a bit of a, a, a fiasco, a very short-lived uh, involvement. Do you see any takeaways, any important lessons from that Wagner involvement, or is it just a blip in the system for both Wagner and for Mozambique? I think it's probably more a, a blip in the system. I think it, it, it demonstrates that it's not easy. It just, you can't send in a handful of foreign mercenaries and assume you're going to vanquish the, the local insurgency. I think it's much more deeply entrenched and, and intractable than that. Uh, with uh, energy projects the size of them, uh, you know, will the government have more money to hire more more Wagner? I mean, you could. You know, it's just a question of cost. It's not not. Um, there aren't any constraints on on Wagner. Well, you know they're pretty busy in, in uh, the Ukraine, but uh, Ukraine. But um, uh, I I don't think anybody has learned any lesson other than they probably will just say, well, we just need to use more force, and we need to drive all the local people. We have a million people displaced from that region. Well, if we you know drive all the rest out then we can have a free fire zone and uh uh we'll deal with it that way um so uh, if they've learned anything it's probably not the right lesson gotcha and, and i want to conclude uh with bringing back to sort of a lesson for the future but also to international relations um you wrote back in 2020 in an article for foreign policy titled mozambique is a failed state the west isn't helping that, quote, rich countries care more about stability in countries that are partial failures than they do about democracy. Um, but, you know, that article is three years old. So I'm curious if in the past three years, you've seen any developments in the Western stance towards relations with Mozambique and trying to assist this country towards stability and or democracy. I think the short answer is no. Um, you know, the last time they had a presidential election, the State Department rushed forward and said, oh, it looks okay to us. And then the e European Union sent in observers that uh, took them a while because you had to do a lot of work uh, and, and talk to a lot of people. But they basically came out with that report that said, no, this, is, this was not a free and fair election. And that came out about a month later, or even two months later. But um, th there wasn't any um, 
sort of penalty for that, that half of the government's budget comes from the international community. And you would think with that kind of leverage, um, they would say, okay, we, we want better governance. And, and, and organizations like the World Bank and the IMF are, are, are even worse. They, 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 don't, they never mention the word corruption. They might call it governance issues or something like that. So I think uh, while we say we support democracy, uh, often other uh, interests are, are given a higher priority. In this case, stability or maybe the energy um, in the case of Niger, we we have a drone base with a thousand soldiers on it, and so we're kind of saying, well, we don't like what's happening in Niger, and it might have consequences, but we're so that's kind of a different situation because we do we have a major interest there. I, you know, why we need a drone base at all in that kind of area. I mean, again, my feeling is that in the Sahel. The problem is governance. It's not, and the solution is governance, and it's not the extremist threat is not something that is solvable by military means, and it's certainly not solvable by sending in UN peacekeepers, which is what we have done in, in a number of countries. And now the Mali has said, you know, you peacekeepers can get out of here. We don't want you here, and and they're in the process of leaving now. And uh, meanwhile, Mali was more than happy to have Wagner come in and solve the problem the Wagner way. So I think the, the bottom line for me is we don't put enough emphasis on democracy. Uh, and of course, we should talk. Do we, do we still have a democracy? So far, maybe. Um, but um, uh, we ought to, because these countries, as I mentioned, don't have a free press don't have a literate population uh, that are economically well enough to engage in civil society, uh, judicial system capable of justice, with rare exceptions like in Mozambique. Uh, the pressure to govern well ought to come from the people who have the leverage, and that's the international donor community who gives Mozambique half its budget. But there again, you've got all these different countries giving money to these uh, extremely poor countries, and, and you get these arguments, well, we can't you know, cut their funds because it will hurt their, their, the people, which is true. Um, but if you don't have that pressure, then there is no pressure. And so we're waiting around for the people to figure out that, that they have to bring the pressure themselves. I mean, it, it's, and it, it took, as I said, took a long while in Latin America to get to where Latin America is. And you still have Venezuela and Nicaragua and, and Central America in general, which is a mess. But um, at least now it's elected government to elected government, as opposed to bringing in the military and, and, and having another coup. Uh, but that took a, a, a tremendous amount of economic and political development. And uh, it, that's you know, not going to happen quickly in Africa. And climate change, of course, only adds to it because when you have 
you know, in, in Mozambique, I don't know what the number is now. It's probably 80% of the people get by on subsistence agriculture, 70% maybe. Uh, and when <laughs> you change the climate and you can't grow enough food to feed your family, then uh, you're not going to sit at home and starve to death. You're going to start migrating. And that's um, a whole nother host of problems that uh, we're failing to deal with particularly effectively. Dennis Jett is a professor of international affairs at Pennsylvania State University. In the 1990s, he served as both the U.S. ambassador to Peru and the U.S. ambassador to Mozambique. Ambassador Jett, thank you so much for joining Pindrop today. Thank you. Alrighty, folks, it is time for the Pin Drop panel. I am, of course, the chief producer of today's episode, Francisco A.J. Camacho, and I'm here alongside my co-producers of Pin Drop, Nick Castillo and Diego Austin. Diego, of course, we know you're still in Israel working hard on that Israel-Palestine episode, which we really want to get just right for you all. But right now we're talking about Mozambique. And I want to turn this first question to you, Nick. Because I chose Mozambique, well, we chose Mozambique because we wanted to do a Wagner episode. And it was one of the countries where Wagner was known to operate. And I delve into this, and it doesn't look like it's actually that comprehensive. They're the presidential guard for uh, the president of Mozambique. And they have one operation in Cabo Delgado that lasts two months. Uh, tell me, do you think that Wagner's operations in Mozambique are pretty representative of most of what they do in Africa. Is there anything interesting going on here? Anything more nuanced? I mean, yes and no. Um, they are representative of Wagner as a whole, and that they're doing a lot of regime security work, which is sort of alongside resource management and, and resource capture. That's a big part of what they're doing in places like Burkina Faso and Mali. Um, it's it's less so representative in, in sort of what you hit upon already, how, how incredibly short their stay in Mozambique was. And really that it was considered a, a failure by and large, um, especially compared to what happened a, a little while later with the entrance of Rwandan groups, who really were very successful. It also looks as if Wagner wasn't really able to get a foothold in any of the resources in, in Mozambique, which, you know, as, as we've talked about on this episode, are, are a huge part of, of this conflict, things like gas and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so it, it's representative of, of Wagner in that it's the kind of work that they're doing, regime security stuff, supposedly anti-terror stuff, but it's, it's clearly a failure on their part. But I, I do think there's something very interesting because Wagner's involvement was back in 2019, I believe. And since then, Russia has gotten, well, they, they've gotten a lot more requests, especially from these governments that are uh, that just led a coup in West Africa and in Mali, Burkina Faso, and probably now in Niger as well. Um, and I think that Mozambique could have served as a very valuable learning experience for Wagner because until that point, their main operations were in Ukraine and Syria. And this was di very different to the landscape they found in Mozambique, which is a lot of very dense jungles. And they also faced problems coordinating with the, the local military. The local military felt like they were kind of bullying them or they were very snobby and overconfident. And this led to poor coordination in the field and those factors led to their failure. Um, so I, I think that it could possibly have informed the decisions they took in, in West Africa, perhaps uh, after learning from that experience. And, you know, it's, it's worth, of course, underscoring that this was four years ago, but the scale of this failure 
in there for two months, um, at least four percent of their of their soldiers in the area died. Uh, that's pretty staggering. What I, I have to wonder is how much these countries are getting Wagner just to please Russia, because even in terms of the effectiveness of private military contractors, we see American companies that are more effective than this, little nor by the standards of other national governments. I mean, it, it seems like that to me. I don't know if you all agree or disagree with me, but it seems like even in terms of mercenary groups, Wagner is not the best. I think they're not the best compared to Western militaries and, and, a lot, and any military contracting group that's um, based out of the West. But I think part and parcel of that is that they have this intense disregard for, for things like human rights and, and war crimes. Um, which might be appealing to like an upstart military junta, uh, which is what we're seeing in, in places like Burkina Faso. The degree to which it's connected to Russia is, is tricky to know. Russia is clearly very interested in, in improving ties with African countries, broadly speaking. We had this recent um, Africa-Russia summit um, a, a couple weeks ago, and, and there are pro-Russia actors on the continent, especially in, in South Africa and West Africa. Um, but the degree to which they're bringing in Wagner to improve relations with Russia. I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing in Ukraine that there isn't a super clear relationship between Wagner and the Russian state. It's a little confrontational, a little combative. There isn't, you know, super strict control over Wagner troops by the Kremlin. Um, I, so I, I don't think it has a ton to do with improving relations with Russia. I think it's a practical call made by, by military hunters. Or perhaps that connection was more clear in a day when maybe Wagner was more closely associated with Putin, but certainly isn't as much nowadays as we've seen in recent months. Uh, I want to pivot to a, a broader examination of these big issues, right? So we talked briefly about development, uh, really terrible human development index score that Mozambique has, one of the poorest countries in the world by far. Um, as well as corruption and, of course, the insurgency, which we've talked about a little bit with Wagner. Uh, Ambassador Jet, when I spoke with him, and I don't want to put words in his mouth because he didn't say this explicitly, but he seems to give off the impression in the interview and in his other writings that corruption is the origin of a lot of these problems, that the insurgency could be better handled with, with less corruption, that development could improve if there was less corruption. I just want to get uh, your all's take with that. Start, start with us with you, Diego. Do you personally think that he's right with that, that the starting place for improving Mozambique's uh, status is corruption? Or do you think there's a way to focus on development without tackling corruption? Well, yeah, I do think that the main issue that would need to be improved to address the root causes of the insurgency is economic development. And I do think that addressing corruption is a, a very big part of that. And I mean, corruption has been like pretty endemic in Mozambique's government. And I think it was like, it, it was a few years ago that there was a, a big scandal that uh, where the government secretly borrowed $2 billion from European investment banks. And this money was, it was kind of understood that this money would be given to them uh, to explore the natural, uh, natural gas sector since like a, a big field had just been found. But instead, they kind of used it to buy a fleet of fishing boats. And it seemed like the, the end point of some of this money was very mysterious. And this kind of led to a big crisis in the IMF. A lot of donors stopped giving money. There were, there were like big shortages, there were salary cuts and Mozambique was left in a lot of debt. Um, and then also as for like on a more, more local aspect in Cabo Delgado, um, there's kind of an ethnic dimension to this, which I think has caused uh, like 
linked to corruption or just disillusionment with the state because the main recruits of um, Al-Shabaab, the, this is the Mozambique Al-Shabaab, which we're talking about, not religious, the one in Somalia. Um, a lot of the recruits are from the Moeni ethnic minority and their big grievance is that, yeah, we have so, we're like probably the richest area of the country for natural resources, but this is just being plundered by foreign companies and we're not really seeing any benefit from this. Um, so I, and I, I do think a lot of this is linked to corruption and I think this is one of the things that must be addressed to kind of combat the root causes of the insurgency. That's sort of, it touches on one of the more interesting things I found in my reading on the conflict, which is the Islamist involvement and the degree to which you have Islamist involvement in a conflict that has really very little to do with Islamism, right? Um, so you have all these guys and the, the writing says, you know, oh, they might reach out to ISIS, they might reach out to Al-Shabaab, they're fostering these ties with these groups. But there's, it's not as if these guys are actual intellectually committed Islamic extremists. It's really a conflict about grievance. It's really a conflict about poverty and corruption. Um, and, and like Diego was talking about these, you know, these people who live in these incredibly resource rich regions, but, but see none of the benefits of that. Um, and, and, and then it just spirals out of control from there. Then you get these transnational actors who come in like ISIS or Al-Shabaab, even though there's, there's very little in terms of a Islamist grievance to be found in the country. So, so what I wonder here though, is, um, you know, which has to come first, the chicken or the egg situation, right? Because sure. If we fix corruption, development can start to improve at a much better level because we start seeing funds redistributed better, uh, funds don't get siphoned off to uh, private companies, don't get siphoned off to personal pockets. But on the other hand, part of the reason why that corruption can exist right now is because the elections are rigged, because people's votes don't count. And because the situation is actively so poor, People have to worry about those basic necessities so they can't go out on the street and protest, their, and their votes don't matter. So how do you tackle this corruption in the first place? Well, you, I kind of think it's improving development, but again, it's hard to improve development without improving corruption. So that's why I kind of wonder if really the way this will change is richer countries, Western countries like the United States perhaps Europe, maybe even China, theoretically, um, or its neighbors taking a bigger stand in some capacity and saying, you guys need to have fair elections. If you don't democratize, we're going to do this and this. Because uh, I don't see how within the current cycle, it breaks without outside uh, intervention and assistance. Well, I, I think that it's uh, a lot of it is uh, these big multinational corporations that need to kind of reconfigure uh, the way things are done because the way it's done now is it's like very exploitative of the local population. And there's several instances where these corporations pretty much like promise that the local population would see some benefit out of it, that they'd like, yeah, okay, we're going to relocate you and whatever, but then this wouldn't really come to fruition. Um, and I, I think it's, I think a lot of these corporations, like um, I'm kind of realistic when I look at this, I, I think that they operate on a very, cost like benefits analysis and i think that they should kind of see it as we should maybe spend more time to accommodate the local population so that we don't have to deal with these islamist insurgencies because they do really take a big toll uh like the french company total i think in 2021 they pulled all their employees out of the region and i think the biggest reason for a lot of these multi-corporate multinational corporations leaving is uh violence um, so I think it has to be seen as um, 
part of uh, something that could increase their their yield. I think you know. I mean, I, I agree with Diego that I think the security situation needs to come first. If you don't have basic security, n- nothing's ever going to follow after that. And that means, to some extent, integrating the um, rebels and integrating their grievances into normal politics. On the corruption issue, I don't know. I mean, in, in my experience studying this issue, it seems as if until you have a domestic leadership cohort who are really committed to building state capacity and getting rid of corruption, not a ton is going to change. You need like a not to be Georgia-centric, but you need like a Mikhail Saakashvili or a Paul Kagame to, to bring it back to Africa, a group of leaders who are really on a, on a street level and then hopefully on a higher level as well, going to be committed to getting rid of corruption. And there's only so much outside actors can do to foster that kind of leadership class. I mean, maybe there's some stuff we could do, but I don't think we should just sit around waiting for you know, the, the situation to resolve itself. And I, I don't think we should necessarily disengage, um, as some countries do, when um, when it, it becomes difficult to root out corruption or, or and even I don't, I don't even think we necessarily need to talk about full democratization before we can talk about these really rudimentary things like, you know, you should be able to travel from one city to another without paying bribes to policemen. You know, you should be able to sell your goods at a marketplace without uh, a risk of, of the police or, or militants shaking you down. Those are the really basic things that I think in some cases end up coming before full democratization. Right. I agree. You, you mentioned as well there, uh, Nick, Paul Kagame. I, you know, this is a, something we've sort of glossed over in the introduction in the interview. But uh, I, I wonder what the implications are going to be that Rwanda has not only gotten involved in the Cabo Delgado insurgency, but they seem to be the ones who've actually made the difference, right? The fatalities since they've come, come in to play in the peacekeeping operations and the anti-terror operations has plummeted dramatically to a small fraction of what it was previously, you know, more than a thousand deaths a year. Rwanda comes in less than a hundred deaths a year. It, it really is staggering. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what the implications will be both for Mozambique and for Rwanda. If this could be the symbol of stronger relations between those two countries and how that could potentially influence either or. Maybe Rwanda could even have some sort of an influence on Mozambique uh, uh, having improved stability. I don't know. Any thoughts, guys? I mean, I think Rwanda's emerging as a, as a serious uh, player in the region. And this is something I, I wonder about with a growing regionalization of politics as a whole in, in Africa. Historically, at least in the you know, second half of the 20th century, and, and of course in the first half when most of the countries were colonies, Africa was a region dominated by outside actors, you know, Europe or the United States or the Soviet Union. Um, you know, with the case of Rwanda becoming a stronger, more stable, and more active um, participant in local politics, and then we can talk about the West African case with, you know, the, the main groups leading the charge against the uh, um, junta in Niger, it's not the United States or Europe, it's Nigeria and ECOWAS. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So we might be seeing this transition now that there's a solid number of stable and strong states on the continent towards a, a, a more regional politics, um, which, which could be great in a lot of ways. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's certainly probably better than a bunch of people who have no idea what they're doing coming from the United States or, or from the Soviet Union. Um, so, yeah, so that, that, that's the trend I'm seeing there. And tech, I'll, I'll just add on. It's fascinating that we've seen this happen in our lifetimes. Like, 
10 years ago, heck, maybe even five years ago, I think people would look at the sub-Saharan, Sub-Saharan Africa and say, you've got South Africa that's mostly stable. That's about it. Like Rwanda seemed like it might be getting there. Now we can look at South Africa. We can look at Rwanda. To an extent, we can look at Nigeria. Um, and we see in the African Union is playing a bigger role in the continent's politics. I think you're absolutely right that it's becoming more and more evident that uh, a lot of change can be influenced by the major powers on the African continent itself. And even France, which still has a dominant presence in a lot of ways on the continent, is, is losing a lot of that influence. Um, at any rate, that. We'll do it for the time that we have for our panel today. Unfortunately, a little bit of a shorter one, had a longer interview and such. Um, we're not going to spin the globe today because I've already spoiled what we uh, anticipate our next episode to be. But Diego, uh, since it's the episode you're working on and it's your last day in uh, Israel, can you give us a little bit of a preview of what we'll be talking about and some things that we can look forward to just in a couple of seconds? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, um, of course, the episode is going to be on Israel and Palestine, but specifically, it's going to look at changing dynamics in the West Bank. If you've been following the news related to the conflict here, you would have seen that there's been a lot of major raids in Jenin and Nablus. So, we're specifically going to be looking at the rise of these new militias that are very decentralized, uh, particularly the Lion's Den and the Jenin Brigades. We're going to be looking at what's going to happen after the aging Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, he's now 87, I believe, what's going to happen after that guy dies or steps down from power because he has not held elections in 20 years and he is deeply unpopular. And we're going to be looking at how these changing dynamics tie into the growth of the, the, the right wing in Israel as well. So... Make sure to check your podcast app next week to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding the West Bank. If you want to make sure new episodes of Pindrop are downloaded to your device automatically, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook to make sure that you catch when new episodes come out. Our guest today was Dennis Jett, the former U.S. ambassador to Mozambique. I am AJ Camacho, the chief producer of today's episode, and Nick Castillo and Diego Austin are my co-producers. Pin Drop World's News was created by Ian Kearns.